Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 69. Thanks so much for joining us. Today's guest is Jim Peterson, a wonderful poet, a wonderful human being. Looking forward to talking to him in just a little bit. Uh, but before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. Uh, we've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are affiliated with any other organization. Um, if you enjoy poetry as much as we do, please click the like button right now. We already have six likes, which is really good before I even ask. And um, uh, click the like button on YouTube. Click the uh, like button on Facebook. I think it's like on Twitter, too. Give us a review if you're watching this later on iTunes. That's always really great. Uh, and uh, five stars. That's good, too. Whatever you can click really helps um, spread this stuff around the Internet. And we love poetry, so we hope poetry spreads around the Internet. So please do us a favor and click the like button right now and we always like to begin with a warm-up poem as people gather around and um, for the warm-up poem today i thought that we would do a poem by eugenia lee uh, which was winner of the 2013 neil postman award for metaphor and we're publishing another poem by eugenia for the first time since then in uh, our spring issue so it reminded me of that and uh, this is destination beautiful and uh, put it on screen now for all to see I'm going to try to do a play it a different way so the sound's a little better. So let me, uh, hopefully, that will work. Here we go. This is uh, Destination Beautiful by Eugenia Lee. Destination Beautiful. I've come to hunt a time capsule at the west end of Sunset Boulevard to rummage the beach for remnants of old friends who've abandoned themselves to sprout new families. Suddenly, everyone has cleaved to strangers made of diamonds and cake, capable of waving away whole bruised childhoods, rotten fruits we used to feed this drooling ocean. Years ago, a friend and I hiked the Will Rogers Trail. We caught a dim rainbow at the cliff where he stood and hid his hands in his pockets. We sucked in the Pacific, the traffic. We met an elderly man called Timothy, a retired tour guide who slept in his car with a book of red-letter scripture seat-belted next to him. I hoped I would die on that mountain because I thought that close to God it would be a hassle to send me to hell. In the memory of that day, I am alone. The friend is there, also alone. He leans from the cliff and scans the city dots for his beautiful girl, his now Wife. Wife. The word bends like a soft branch in my mouth. I've learned not to choke on it by lying achingly still. The waves reach and reach for me over the black ocean, the tender white hands of children petting a large, harmless corpse. And that was Eugenia Lee with Destination Beautiful. I just love, what an amazing poem that is. The words bend like a soft branch in my mouth. I've learned not to choke on it. Um, wonderful stuff. And let's look up what she's uh, doing. Like, this is her website, eugenialee.com. You can see it's um, on the screen there. It is uh, spelled like it's written, E-U-G-E-N-I-A-L-E-I-G-H is eugenialee.com. So check her out, her uh, most recent book here is Blood, Sparrow, Blood, Sparrows, and Sparrows. And um, check that out at eugeniallee.com. Now, today's poet, as I mentioned, is uh, Jim Peterson. 
And uh, Jim Peterson's the author of six collections of poetry, uh, three chapbooks, numerous plays, and the novel Paper Crown, all by Red Hen Press, I think, um, and recently made available on Audible. Um, his poetry collection, The Owning Stone, won Red Hen Press's Benjamin Saltman Award in 1999. His newest collection, um, other than the newest one, is um, Speech Minus Applause by, 53, by Press 53. His poems have appeared widely and all over the place, um, a lot of great journals, including poetry, um, and Rattle, the current issue of Rattle. Um, he has a poem in, uh, for the first time we've ever published him. And um, his newest book I'll put on screen right now is um, The Horse Who Bears Me Away. Just a beautiful book. I mean, I mean, what a book this is, and what a cover this is, too. I love um, what Red Hen Press did with this cover. Um, and here he is, uh, Jim Peterson. Hey, Jim, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Do you want to start us out with a poem? Sure, sure. And before I uh, do that, I just want to thank you and uh, Rattle for having me on. This is a this is great fun and a great opportunity. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's definitely my pleasure. I mean, I um I, I'd say I'd been a fan of your work for a long time, but I actually hadn't until um until really recently. But I've looked through all your work, um, and I just love the way you write and your style and um and what you have to say. So um, I appreciate you being on. All right, thank you so much. All right, so I'm gonna st- I have to start this book with the uh, prologue poem, because that's uh, the poem that gives me the title of the book. Uh, and so I'm going to, I'm going to start there and it's called the horse. In the enormity of bone and flesh that splits the night with blood and breath. In the rising brushstroke of pastern, fetlock, cannon bone and stifle. In the rolling sloop of dock, croup, withers, and pole, I discover my body. In the barrel that takes to the grip of thighs, the flank that accepts the needling heel, in the mane where I bury my hands at last, in the forelock and muzzle of that long face, in the chin groove, jaw, and throat that swallows my words like cracked oats, in the two black eyes that glean the full circle of horizon, in the shell song of each ear, in the heart, in the heart, the horse who bears me away. And that's the opening poem, The Horse. Um, Also the title poem, or the title is contained in it through uh, Jim Peterson's newest book, The Horse Who Bears Me Away for Bread Hen Press. Um, Jim, let's start out just to sort of get set up and, and sort of frame this. How did you get into poetry? And, um, and, and, and what has poetry meant to your life? Um, like, what has your journey been to get to this place where you have a whole bunch of um, award-winning, wonderful poetry books uh, to share with us? You know, uh, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I, was a, I was a spacey kid. Uh, I, I was a kind of, uh, I had an artist's temperament, but without any, any ability, <laughs> without any skills whatsoever. I, I was not a musician. Uh, I certainly couldn't dance or sing. I, um, I couldn't, I, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't paint or draw. I couldn't stick figures was my highest level. Uh, but there was, there was an artist in me looking for something. And, uh, I think I started out listening to people like Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and it was songwriters that the words of some of those songs started getting to me. Um, and uh, I, I also write songs, uh, so that's, 
it's part of, even though I can't play an instrument, I still write songs. I can't help myself. Uh, and so I got, uh, there was just something in me that wanted to be creative. It wanted to do something that wasn't the norm uh, of what was expected of me. Actually, my father was a successful businessman. He wanted me to go into his business very badly. And uh, I really, I disappointed, I broke his heart and uh, told him I was going to, when I told him I was going to major in English, it, it, it was like, I didn't, I didn't think they were going to be able to get him up off the floor. You know, he just, uh, it was like, what are you talking about? And when I told him I wanted to be a poet, well, you can imagine I, I was, this was in a small town in South Carolina. So, uh, anyway, uh, the, the sad part of it is that I wasn't a very good poet for a long, <laughs> long time. <laughs> and, uh, I like to say this because I think it's true. I, I didn't know I wasn't good and that helped me, uh, because I kept writing. Um, and when I finally realized I wasn't very good, it was too late. I couldn't stop. Uh, and I got better. Uh, so I guess if there's one message, maybe there's others, but one would certainly be, uh, you, you, you will get better if you keep writing. What, what uh, was it that, you re- that made you realize that, that you weren't good as you put it? Um, and, and how, and what was the sort of hurdle you had to make to, to become good? Cause I, I think you're good now. <laughs> so, um, you know, that, that's, very, that's very interesting. I, I had a very famous teacher at the time. I'm, I'm an old guy. I'm 72. Uh, and my teacher back in, in, in college, uh, well, when I was like a senior and then in my graduate, in graduate school, was James Dickey. Uh, and he was one of the two or three most prominent poets in America at that time. And uh, he was a he had this huge mind. He had, a, had an encyclopedic mind for, for literature. Um, and he was crazy as a loon, but he was, he was a, he was a good tea. I learned a lot from him. Uh, and, um, he had us, I mean, all the poems I wrote in his classes where I was trying to say something profound were awful. I mean, I, you know, I thought they were great. I was being this profound, but what he did that, that helped me through that was he did, had, had us do a lot of crazy things like free association, uh, dream writing. Things where I, where, where, and he made us write fast so that I didn't have time to censor things and I didn't have time to, um, to wonder whether or not what I was saying was good or profound. And I started waking up to this other part of myself that was a really the creative part. It wasn't the, the conscious mind so much as it was something that was coming to me from an unconscious level that kept surprising the hell out of me. You know, whereas the stuff I'd written before didn't surprise me or anybody, even my dog got bored. You know, it was just, there was no surprise there. You could see what was coming from a mile away. But suddenly when I didn't know what was coming, I began to surprise myself with that next thing that came. And that began to open me to writing some better poems. That's a good segue to the, the next poem. I had a request for you to read. Um, if you could read the, the second poem in the collection, which is... Um... Uh, Breakfast at the Western Cafe. Would you mind reading that? Not at all. I, I like reading this poem. Uh, when I was uh, 25 years ago or so, 23 years ago, I lived in Montana, uh, and my wife Harriet was uh, a great horse trainer and teacher and competitive rider and all of that. And uh, I lived with her and with horses for 45 years. Anyway, she would. I, we lived in Billings, and she would go over to Bozeman to teach there. 
Uh, and she had a famous artist who was a student there in her barn. They had a bunch of students that took from her. So I would leave her there and I would go downtown and I discovered this place called the Western Cafe, which was this hole in the wall, greasy spoon, great, great place to go and eat. The locals went there and every, you could hear all these stories and everything. It was just, you know, from the people around me. And that's what this is based on. All of this is actually true, this particular point. Breakfast at the Western Cafe. Rain has muddied the river, someone says, and spoiled the fishing for today. Each day climbs on the back of the last one, like breath after breath getting nowhere. The waitress at the Western Cafe, blonde and beautiful and in demand, turns that river of coffee at the end of her hand into cup after cup puts down a cinnamon roll big as a boxing glove, smiles over her secret frown, and the long-faced rancher at table number four will not look at her. The girl who starts on Monday sits at the counter all day to learn the ropes. For me, this is time without encroachment, burning in my belly like a Mexican omelet. A sign behind the counter says, T-Bone 295, with meat, 8.75. An old photo of the Roundup Parade from the 20s catches the marching band mid-stride, sunlight flashing on the tubas and trombones. Two guys remember the rumors of fraud, a small boy creeping under the timbers and the lazy sloshing of fire. High on one wall, the night-crawling skull of a steer presides over this clanking of spoons and forks. Everywhere here, hands know their roles by heart, curling over the edges of news, drifting over food on grills and tables. An old man in a small room adds receipts. Hutterites at a long table behind me, the strong suspended men, the sackcloth, white-capped women, Laugh at their inside jokes. Good workers, the waitress whispers, but they'll steal you blind. The cattle brands burned into wooden plaques above our heads roam over thousands of sections on the butts of steers and cows. The waitress goes home where she chants in her children's ears, smile, remember the regulars, keep moving. There's always something needs to be done. Use up every second of your break. Hearts that know their roles by hand welcome exhaustion as a kind of peace. An elk's head wears sunglasses, a white Stetson and a red bandana. The bucked off cowboy in an old photo is always flying above that arched back. Glorious black oblivion in the horse's eye. Thanks so much. And that was a uh... That was A Breakfast at the Western Cafe by Jim Peterson from his newest book, The Horse Who Bears Me Away. And I just, that last line, the glorious black oblivion in the horse's eye, seems like it contains sort of everything to me. And it's also, there's this black eye of the horse on the cover, too. And um, what, I, I'm just wondering, like, like, I had my own interpretation and sort of feeling reading that poem. But I wonder, what do you think of as that, that black oblivion of the horse's eye? Because that seems like, you know, like, uh, like all the life swirling around that black eye um, is sort of the, 
the thing that gives them meaning or something. I mean, what is that black eye to you? Well, I want to try to not get too fancy, <laughs> but I, I, I fear that, that I, I'm going to fail. Uh, you know, I'm not sure when I wrote the line that I was totally, that I totally understood this. Again, I, I believe in this. Poets are given lines. You know, if Jim tried to write that line, he has no chance. It's got to come from some place that's that's less uh, messed up and conditioned and all of that. So that line came. So now, you know, this is years later. Um, you know, I think in a sense, and that's why the horse becomes such a powerful image for me, that the horse is is pure, is innocent, mysterious, wild. The horse. I don't care how trained a horse is. If you're not careful around the horse, you're you're going to be hurt or dead. I mean, seriously, you got to know what you're doing around horses because they're they are oblivious in that sense. They don't give a damn about. They, they don't care or think in the way that humans do. So uh, there's something. Um, I think that oblivion is the oblivion of innocence. Of, of, of the horse doing what it just does, which is it throws something foreign off of its back, you know? Now it's up to that rider to know how to fall. And that's what the epi- epigraph is in the, and for the book. Is that the right word, epigraph? Um, the Mexican proverb, it goes, it is not enough for a man to know how to ride. He must know how to fall. And so... Uh, if we're going to be around animals like horses or almost any animals, in a sense, we have to know how to fall. In other words, we have to be conscious in that moment because we're going to get thrown. If you're going to ride horses, you're going to be thrown. There is no you can't be you can't start riding horses and say, not me. I'll never be thrown. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> so uh, ho- good horse people, good riders trained to fall. Because they want, as soon as they're going off and they know they're gone, they want to be going in a way where they're seeing everything that's happening and they're conscious. So you got to learn how to ride, but you damn well better learn how to fall. Yeah, and and that the reason why that that line seems so central to the book is because it, um, you know, it's not just about riding horses. Of course, it's about life, you know, and riding yeah. sort of the wildness, and um, and to me that that. The, the black oblivion is sort of the the abyss you know and the and the the chaos that in the unknown and um you know just the wildness of this life that we're all living through and so that all these other lives sort of you know moving around this this horse's eye who's about you know who's in the middle of throwing the rider and and, and then the horse sort of doesn't even care or know it's just a horse being a horse you know I mean, there's just something great about that line and it comes sort of it just hits you. It's I think it's a great, great poem and a great line there. Thanks for uh, for sharing that and writing oh. that. Well, thank you, thank you. I appreciate um, that. I should say, uh, if anybody has any questions for Jim Jim Peterson, uh, just leave them in the chat windows. I'm watching Facebook and YouTube, but not any of the other ones that were streaming live. So if you have any questions, leave them there, and I can pass them along. Um, I have a lot I want to talk about, Jim, but let's do a couple more poems. Maybe um, well, I don't know about the next one you had is longer or shorter, but like one or two, depending on the length. What do you think? I got a couple. Uh, well, the next one I have is called "Laid Off," uh, and uh, it's 
there's a wide range of poems in this book, but the book is actually thematic from from my mind. In my mind, it's it's uh, moving left to right thematically. It's it's evolving as you get out to the end. So all these first poems are about characters who are in some state of falling. Um, so this one is called Laid Off. Yesterday, I strolled among the cold meats and the small, bland vegetables in their bins and could not find anything I wanted. I admit, I took some pleasure in ramming the metal cart into the long, stuck row of others. Make of that what you will. And walked into the street, happy with my hunger. I could feel my body retreating into bone, my skin pulling tighter around me in the wind. A seagull fed on tiny morsels of something on the trashy asphalt, a hundred miles from the ocean. Two miles away, my wife was packing to leave me. I left my car in the lot and walked into a neighborhood among sparrows, plunging their heads into the blades of grass. Even the house cats, stretching and licking on windowsills, had something definite on their minds for later, pausing mid-lick in case it might be me, now. But today, I'll stay home, making do with what I have. Outside, everything is leaning into one decision after another. A freight train slows down to cross my street, one hand emerging as if to wave from the long window of a boxcar. In here, the fridge is busy saving what is left of what is left. The TV is a voiceless flickering in the corner of my eye. Weeks ago, I wrote the checks for this brief future. Today, I lie down on the lawn. I will not bother to mow again. That was laid off from uh, Jim Peterson's newest book, The Horse Who Bears Me Away. Um, do you, let's do another one, Jim. Okay. I'll move further uh, further down. This is in, another, in the, in the uh, uh, second section called The Fall. I have three sections called The Fall. Uh, and But it's more about The Fall, which you'll see right away. This one is just called Rain. Rain, your voice filters down to me through cottonwood leaves, strokes me into quiet gray light under the window, crawls shaggily into my ear like a late fall fly. You would confine me to the room of my own song, but I will not give you the satisfaction. There is nothing in my hands on the table. I step outside and catch your slang on the brim of my hat. Your words have taught me to search for the small, dry underside of an alder leaf where the wolf spider sleeps. I have learned to follow the syntax of your falling, your parallel structures tumbling over the ground to the place where I belong. That was Rain by Jim Peterson. Um, thanks so much, Jim. So we... We have a mutual friend, uh, Eric Campbell. Uh, yes, and um, and I asked him, <laughs> I asked him like I what I should ask you about, and uh, one of the things he said was um, to ask you about the the role of ego, um, in in for a poet, which is actually strange because it's something that I was just thinking a lot about a couple days ago because I was watching um or listening I should say on a commute to an old lecture by um, Anna Freud, and I realized that um the i I'd kind of forgotten the real definition of an ego 
And, um, you know, because you think of like, you know, they have a big ego, they're arrogant, and that kind of thing was sort of the colloquial way we use the word. But but to um, psychoanalysis, the uh, ego is um, the, uh, there, there's a metaphor that Freud used and Anna used in this talk of um, the rider of a horse. And uh, the, the horse is the id, and the ego is the rider, sort of guiding our internal um you know, our internal drives, um, you know, we have internal drives, the horse wants to go where it wants to go. And then the rider has to try to turn that into going where the rider wants to go. And that's the role of the ego. So if you have um, no ego, um, it doesn't mean that you're, um, you know, narcissistic or something. It means that you can't control your id is what happens when you have no ego in, in psychology. And so I was thinking about this with in, in terms of poetry. Um, just what do you think of of the, the the role of the ego in poetry? Is um is uh, Eric Campbell asked? Uh, hey Eric, if you're here, I thank thank you for this uh, question, Dagnabbit. You're, you've <laughs> got a, that's a good one there. Let me see if I can answer this. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm grateful for Eric. He's he's a he's a really good a really good friend uh, and a really good poet, by the way. Yeah, he was on. I should mention for but he was on Rattlecast number like I don't know forty or something back in uh, June. So if anybody wants to go back and check uh, our conversation with him, please do. It's a good one. Uh, so um, I, the, the problem with your with the question, Eric and and uh, Tim, is that uh, I I don't I don't uh, particularly uh, agree with or follow the the Freudian. Um, explication of ego and id and all of that. So my wife was a horse, was a rider, and I watched her ride for many, many years. And there's there's some element of what you're talking about mm -hmm. there. But what really happens is that the the rider has to give up her ego. Mm -hmm. She's got to. If she's too controlling, the horse will always resist. And you've, you're lost. You, you, if you go out and watch great uh, riders, good riders, great riders, not so good riders, you'll notice that the ones where the horse's ears are turned back uh, and are and because the horse is reacting to what the rider is doing and there's this resistance between the two of them, you see that tension between the rider and the horse because the ego of the rider is saying, damn it, do what I take. You know, it's like that. So the rider... This is kind of a, I would say this is more Daoist. Uh, and I saw my wife here doing this all the time. It's more like, okay, you go where you want to go. I'll follow. And I'm going to learn how you move. And after a while, she would be so with the horse that then when she asked the horse to go somewhere, the horse was willing. I don't know if that makes sense, but that it was like there wasn't an ego and an id. There was just a one a connection between the two that was not about fighting. So you want if you bad horse people are people who will beat the horse up to get them to do what they want them to do. But then the performance of the horse is always against its will. Whereas a good rider, the horse is uh, is doing what it wants to do, not realizing that it's also doing what the what the writer wants it to do. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So can we can we apply this to poetry? Is that the writing process? Yes. Yes. So if you start if you start writing a poem, uh, 
and you know what you wanted to do right as you're starting and you damn it you're gonna make that poem do what you wanted to do if you're working like that uh the poem will fight back or you could say the muse will fight back often all right so this was really the point that dickie got me to when i was describing earlier he got me listening instead of forcing you know i'd get a few words down now i'm listening to what could come next instead of instead of already knowing what it damn well had to be next and so there's that the ego has to has to go take a hike <laughs> um let me mention another friend of mine i hope she's listening here tonight uh Melanie Harris as um, an old friend and a poet. And we were talking just a two, few days ago. Uh, we were online. We probably weren't talking on the phone, but we were on, it was either email or Facebook or something. And, and this phrase came, came up uh, from her, uh, what I left in the silent house. I instantly wrote it down. And as we were still corresponding, words started coming to me. I had no, I was not even thinking, they were just coming. And so there was this title, I had it as a title, and now words were falling out of the title down the page. They were coming out organically down the page. And my ego was not there, it was not there, it was not resistant to what was trying to come. So I think that's, uh, you know, I mean, that's kind of an ideal situation, but I've courted that. And once I learned that, that, that Jim is not smart enough to write a good poem, uh, that something that this other other has to be operating. Once I learned that many many years ago, everything changed for me. It, the whole thing changed for me. So um, the the ego, you know, is just translated as I. So and Freud's actually, you know, in the original, it was uh, the the it in the I is what he was talking about when the, in the ego. Um, so so who yeah. is the I that's writing these poems if it's not Jim? Um, where do they come from? Like what what? Yeah. Okay. You're getting into the deep I'm stuff trying. here, man. Yeah, I like the deep stuff. And, and also, uh, Vicky Miko already said, you said, uh, I don't want to get fancy. And Vicky Miko says, oh, please get fancy. So we have permission <laughs> to get as fancy as you want. Okay. All right. So um, the I, I did, okay, so this has become the truth for me. The I is only a thought. The I is what is, in other words, it's what's called the I thought. If you didn't think you were an I, you'd be free. But because you think you're an I, now that I thought is defending itself and setting itself up. And it becomes this bundle of thoughts or cluster of thoughts in us. And it's all conditioning. Uh, the I, the I is, is the product of conditioning. Okay. And it's always in a defense. It's always defending uh, or trying to get what it wants, or trying to get pleasure. This is this is how it works. If you can't, you ha so once once I realized that that's all the I was, that there really isn't a, a substantial I in here. That I kind of saw through what the I structure is, and once that happens, now the things can come from everywhere. They can come from anywhere. Ideas, thoughts, words, they can come from. Now I have the, the universe is sort of my source. Whereas before it was this little tiny mouse of an eye in me that thought it was a big deal. I mean, it wasn't. <laughs> does that make sense? Is that making no, sense? No, no, it definitely does. It's it's really a topic I'd love to talk about. So um, the yeah. 
I don't know, the, the, the connection between writing and meditation is just so strong for me, in my opinion. I think for, in my life, there are two places where I feel like the no self, like no tan, you know. I feel it when I'm writing like a poem or a story or something where I'm absorbed in it and I no longer am. And, and the only other place that I feel that way is playing sports. If You know, I'm, I'm a, I play baseball and, um, you know, you can the balls hit and you like dive and roll and throw it to the first base and, and you don't even know what just happened. Like it was just, it was not you that was moving And the other, other time I experienced that is in the process of writing or maybe reading too, when you get absorbed, you're sort of transferring that to another person and letting them get that absorbed in the text, I think maybe. So it's, it, does writing, is that your kind of meditation? Do you think is that, is that your practice? Would you say? Uh, Okay. Again, remember, I'm 72. I, 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 there's been a long evolution here. I, I was for a long time a, a meditator. Uh, I'm not a. I don't meditate. I don't meditate any any longer. Uh, maybe every once in a while, but not not on a consistent basis. Uh, writing is kind of like meditation. I agree with you because you get so uh, f- focused in a way, and you forget everything else. Everything else, you forget everything else, and and you become very focused. Um, but I, I would have to say that I, I have given up the notion of a practice because just think of the word, I don't want to be practicing, you know, you, you can't be practicing to be free of the ego. If, if you're practicing, that means your ego is in there trying to get free of itself. So uh, I, I let go of practices, and that and that that felt like a great liberation um, some years ago when I did that, uh, and it liberated my portrait, my writing even even more. Um, so I don't know how if I can go further with mm-hmm. that or not. Um, I don't know if I'm getting to to the to the question you were asking. No, no, I think you definitely did. Um, and I don't want to talk too much without getting through more poems. So let's uh, let's read maybe. Um, let me look at your list, Rico. Let's do Tundra and the Mole, and then um, we'll talk a little bit more. Okay, uh, Tundra is another Montana poem, and uh, I think it will speak for itself. Tundra. For more than one year. I have wanted to talk to a crow. Coming down the Beartooth Pass today, I spotted a giant one, a raven maybe, ranting on the dead limb of a tree on the low side of the road. No one was in my rearview mirror, so I stopped and rolled down my window. With each embellishment, he dipped his head and lurched, the whole tree twisting in a mad loop. He spoke to someone on the high side, above my head, out of sight, and ignored me. What are you doing, I said. He stopped his exclaiming to look at me. What are you doing? What are you doing? I was in a great mood from hiking 15 miles of Beartooth Tundra. I never thought he would look at me, but he did. For five seconds, maybe six his eyes black beetles in the sun. He was so black the light loved him and fell from his back like thrown knives bouncing off a rock. What are you doing? I could see in his eyes he knew who I was exactly. 
stupid human, he said, then lifted from that limb like a helicopter from the chaos of a battlefield, filled beyond capacity with the wounded and the dead. It's not a great poem. That was Tundra from uh, Jim Peterson's newest book. And I just got to tell you, Jim, I, uh, I read, I sort of flipped through on a Sunday reading some of these poems, and, um, and, and I happened to read that one. And then later I played tennis um, with some mm-hmm. friends and a crow landed on the fence right next to our tennis <laughs> match and watched us play tennis for like five minutes every once in a while I would like caw or something so I had a very weird surreal moment thinking about this poem and then you said it you know in the email this morning you said you're going to read it and I thought god I, that that is some weird stuff going on there <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of weird things going on with animals in my life uh, uh, I love the animal world uh, say more about that like what is it what is it about the animal world that um, that you're drawn to or, or is drawn to you, you think? Well, I think part of it is is that the animal, it, I, it, this is something I believe, I, I guess I can't say with 100% certainty it's true, but the animal is living in a, uh, th- there is no real I, I think, uh, operating in the animal. The animal is just going to what's next and enjoying and hoping to be, able to eat and then play and run and catch something or it's just such a full vigorous kind of uh involvement in its own in its life uh that i that i love i love going out with my dog and just watching her chase a squirrel that's the most that to me is so much fun i just laugh so it's just like because she can't catch them (laughs) And then they'll go up halfway up the tree and, and kind of make fun of her, you know, from, from up on the tree because <laughs> she can't get to them. But just watching all of that joyous activity. Now, I know it's more serious than that and that they do catch them and they do eat them and all of that is going on. Uh, but I don't think in their world that's there's nothing wrong or bad with that. That's just life, mm-hmm. you know. I don't know. Anyway, I, I, I know that I'm an animal. I have no no doubt of that. I am a I am a I am a, bi, a biological robot, essentially, unless unless I do realize that thing about the eye that I was talking about before. I think when a person really sees through the eye thought and realizes that there really is no eye doing anything, it thinks it's doing everything, but the world will teach it over and over again that it can't do anything. When when it, when when it when there's a realization of that, that just kind of fades. It's still there; it can function, but it's not running the show. And uh, we become more of a of a real animal, I guess. And in Buddhism, uh, they call it the original original face. You know, what, uh, who are your who are you, who was your mother and father? Uh, no, uh, excuse me. What is your original face before your mother and father were born? That's the Cohen. I have a book titled "Original Face" uh, because in that book, the whole point of the whole book is, is trying to get past the duality of I and other into that original, innocent beingness that we are. Yeah. Um, do you think you know? I always wonder. I mean, we're talking really about sort of the you know, Adam and Eve before the fall or something, you know, before the knowledge of good and evil and before the worry about our fate and stuff. Um, Do you think that we as human beings who know of our own mortality, which is what it's really all about, 
um, have, have we gained something even as we've lost that? Like, like we talk about the, you know, talking about diving for a baseball. That's what my dog does every day. And I only get to do it every once in a while when I, you know, my softball league is not suspended for COVID. Um, Mm -hmm. do, do you think we, is there something we gain by being able to, to examine life or, or, or sort of, um, do you, do you wish that you were a dog? No, I don't wish I was a dog. Um, and, you know, I think way back, was it, uh, tell me, was it Socrates or Plato who said, know thyself? Who was it that originally said that? Was it I'm Plato? not sure. Okay, know thyself. I don't think for a long time we really knew what he was talking about. Because no, knowing, a dog can't know herself. Uh, it doesn't need to. Uh, but a human being, we, we, we generate this, this, this phony self in, our, in here. And now we've got to know it because if we don't, we can't get. So what happens is we, we start out as a, as an infant. We're basically like a dog. We're innocent in that way. All this stuff gets put upon us, all this conditioning. And then at some point we start waking up and realizing what's happened. And we see, start seeing through that. And then it's possible to pass into a phase beyond that. But it's, it's a very powerful and potent phase because we have gone through that because we because we fall into believing that we are this i and and we we go through that for a while then when we come out of that on the other side now we're more whole and complete for knowing that it's like and also that then can become a tool rather than rather than being the boss of us it's an instrument that we can use yeah so I think, no, I, I'm glad I'm a human being. I'm very glad I'm a human being. Yeah, yeah, like, like the Buddha who, you know, finds nirvana and then decides to come back to use, you know, the, that knowledge as a tool for everybody else. Yeah. Um, let's do another animal poem then. The mole is another uh, fitting poem to come up next. Okay. Another animal, human Yeah, poem. yeah, exactly. Human animal poem. But remember, we're still in the fall of this book. So this is another fallen character here like all of us, the mole. I am the fox that listens to the mole, or the mole, something in me says, that reveals its ancient goal. I wish I could say I have let go of the whiskey, the pot, the bad politics, my dream of a loving and available God. How can I convince myself of my own worth standing knee-deep in the creek like all the other stones, or lying back in the driver's seat in an empty parking lot, watching the weather through carved glass. I still look for the light in myself and others, the gang of boys cruising on their skateboards, the homeless old dog scavenging the cracks and curbs, trying to remember that warm corner where he curled up last night. I feel for the pistol my father left me 35 years ago, unfired in all that time, the ammo almost as old as I. If that man creeping around the closed grocery store approaches me, I'll just give him what I have. A few bucks, my old pair of boots still waterproofed. But nobody heads in my direction. Maybe we all understand each other. Or maybe I'm scary as hell, a tuft of my hair visible in the half-lowered window. Maybe they can sense that thirty-eight curled up like a small, cold cat in my coat pocket. 
I hope not. I don't mean to have it. I just do. I've decided I don't need to understand anything. I'll just lie back in the creek and allow the water to flow over me. I was falling asleep anyway, not waking up as I had hoped. I've decided to be, con- to be the contented mole, traveling underground, pushing up circuitous mounds to draw the hungry fox. To be this old man, half asleep, half awake, sitting in his beat-up car, the given swirling around me like the glints of light on a summer lake, the all-consuming, unimportant journey still coursing through me like the dream I almost forgot but didn't. Excellent. That was the perfect timing for that poem, too. That was the mole from uh, Jim Peterson's book, The Horse Who Bears Me Away. Um, Jim, the next poem you wanted to read is um, mm-hmm. um, uh, Masks, and it's a prose poem. And I wanted to ask yeah. a little bit about that, because every time we publish a prose poem, um, people write in and say, um, why is this? Like, that's good writing, but why is this a poem? And and my uh, if I'm feeling glib, my answer is because we're a poetry magazine and a poet sent it to us and called it a poem, and we liked it. Um, but but if not, there's something that makes a poem um, different from prose in a way. Like like what is it to you? Like I have my own opinion, but I'm curious what you think makes these. Because the book, if you look at the front of the book, right? I'll put it on screen for everybody. In the front of the book says the horse who bears me away poems, Jim Peterson. Um, and then there's a section with I think four uh, prose prose poems. So, five five prose poems. So, so what makes yeah. those poems still, even though they're prose? Uh, well, you're calling them prose poems. Okay. What are you calling them? Uh, I, I, I don't, I don't know that I call them anything. Uh, I guess they are kind of poetic, um, but uh, they're not. They're not cadenced uh, in the way that poems are. They don't. I, I'm not using the ends of lines to create any kind of effects. You know, the, the margins on the right are ragged. The, uh, Mark Cole, who designed the book for Red Hen, he had a, he, he originally had them, uh, the, the margin, uh, what would be the right word, just flush. And I asked him to, le- to let it be ragged because I really like the ragged edge. Uh, uh, but because I don't like it to be a block. I think the eye likes that ragged edge better. Uh, but so, but there's everything's by accident at the ends of the lines. It's just whatever word just happens to land there and so on. So I really am not sure I can answer your question. Um, well, maybe not, not for I these. Do, I do write fiction. This, this sort of is a trend. Mm-hmm. These are sort of transitional things into my fiction mm-hmm. writing to a degree. Go ahead. Well, well, just in general, I just want to use that as a step off though. Like what, what is a poem though? What makes it a poem is, is opposed to prose? Um, you know, like, like what's the difference? Like where, um, you know, you write some books that are novels, right? And you write some books that are books of poetry. Um, it, it, there must be a difference, right? We have different words for them. So what are, what's the difference? Yeah, yeah. You, 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 this is a tough question, I think. Um, and I've heard all kinds of answers. I, I think for me that the measurement of the line is what makes the biggest difference. I mean, there's a poet, uh, James Tate, um, and there was a certain point in his career and he'd been a poet, you know, and his lines were, the line was important and how he broke the line. All of that was a big part of what he was doing. And then as he got older, he said, to hell with all that. And he started writing these poems that really are 
they just flow across across the edge of the of the end of the line. They don't. And then the more he did this, he wrote four or five of these books at the end of his life, and they became what he cared about more than the other, I think. And they become really na- kind of uh, whimsical narratives, and I love them. I, I really I like them better than the than the poetry. And I think uh, uh, writers uh, like Tay, he calls them poems. They're on the front of the cover, it's called poems. But these are not poems, I can assure you. But that's what he was known for. So they called them poems. But they, you look at them, uh, uh, and, and you'll agree, I think, uh, that they're not really poems. But they're still something important. Yeah, I think they're his his best poems. Um, they're, they're my favorite yeah. of his, the... Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll just run by. I don't think we've discussed it on the show, like my opinion of what the difference is. Um, but I feel like mm-hmm. prose is trying to sort of work on the mind's eye is the central like place that it lives. So you're sort of visualizing and you're you're moving ideas around in this sort of this space. It's almost like a, a movie or something, whereas poetry mm-hmm. exists in like the heart or something. It's in the body or the regulation of your breath, which you talked about the length of lines being important. I think that's because the the length of the line is sort of the length of, a, of an articulation of speech or something. And so so right. poetry is sort of like of the body and prose is of the mind. That, that That's the distinction that I always get. And then so certain poets like James Tate sort of walk the boundary between the two and sort of play with that in an interesting way where they're still sort of living in the body, but they're sort of creeping up against that, that mind's eye kind of um, um, target, yeah. you know? Um, do you, does that does that make sense or is that just uh, my own crazy That's theory? interesting. I'm, 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 hap- I'm having to uh, uh, consider it. Um, well, if, when I read this, I don't think that you're going to say this is of the mind. Yeah, exactly. As which much, is why I'm calling it. It might, say it's of, it might say it's of the heart, but it's but it's prose. Yeah, which is why I, I still call it poetry. But but we'll see. <laughs> but you're the poet, so uh, you can call it. You know, it's up to you what to call it. I guess. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and to be honest with you, I don't know. I just know that Red Hen over the years mm-hmm. has become more and more open to a kind of hybrid texts. Uh, and they encourage people to have both poetry and prose uh, in there. And I just happen to have these, and I love them, so I, and I enjoy reading them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You want to hear the masks? Yeah, let's hear, the, let's hear masks. Masks, okay. okay. Buckle, buckle your chin straps. Masks. Oh, I have to give you one note. Part two is based on an experience in Peru with a Peruvian uh, ayahuasquero or shaman. Hmm. Masks. Part one, the skin of my face takes the shape of each outward attitude I need. Like the one for her after I ran away because I was scared of a strange man on our street and she found me huddled in the woods and pressed her hand on my chest to feel the rattling of my heart. Like the one for him when I came home when I wanted to, which was way late, his hand unbuckling the belt and whipping whipping it from around his waist, throwing out and uncoiling that black circle of himself until the backs of my legs gave up every last hope of ever sleeping and forgetting. Like the one for those who gave me a place in the crowd at school to hide when I didn't know who I was or what I was or where I might possibly go. Like the one for her whose eyes shone through her mask to something in me that she saw and liked that I didn't know was there, but now I do. 
like the one for the sky with white clouds passing over, black clouds passing, clear sky full of the mask of the sun, pretending to be nothing and everything at once. Like the one for catching rain and letting it in, the one for making a speech, the one for shaking hands, like the face designed to fit snugly in the palms of my hands when I need to hold it, to feel its exterior separateness, to feel through it inwardly toward a position that witnesses all of my masks and looks out through their eye holes, seeing that deep witness in others that lives and understands from a place beyond the need for masks. Two. What means to you a mask, the shaman asks, sitting on the floor cross-legged behind a small altar holding stones and feathers. I make them for money, she says. I create them to stay alive, to hold my dream faces in my hands, my powerful faces that cause the world to give and take. He says, hmm, that's interesting. She says, I make them to sell in gift shops and galleries, all of my faces going out into the world and possessing the others, covering them, mastering them, becoming them, until I can take my mask off and lay it in the grass and walk away like it's just another leaf that let go, blowing in the wind, flying over the shoes of strangers, disappearing in the woods where the deer curl up and sleep at night. He says, hmm, I understand. He begins to rattle and sing, calling to the beings of light, the spirits of the sacred mountains, the condor and the puma, the being of the plant medicine that pulses green and shining in his veins. She falls as if something is guiding her down, her body collapsing like a segmented tent pole, but stretching out again on the floor. The shaman goes to her, strokes the long condor feather over her again and again, flicking the tip as it passes over her feet. He keeps singing and shaking his rattle, and her body stretches and stretches and flows like the part of a river seen through a gap in the leaves. She is the river of masks. She is the mask of the one river always changing. See, I think that is a poem. Like, <laughs> like, like, I just everybody at home. Can't you feel? I wonder. Uh, maybe we could take a poll or something. But, but don't you feel like there, there's the way that your own heartbeat is? You're listening to that, so it starts to match with the rhythms of the poem. Like, there's something bodily about that. That um, it's like the difference between like watching a film at a movie theater versus watching a concert. Like, there's a beat, you know, and your heart starts to be regulated okay. by that. I'm getting what you're saying yeah, now better. Yeah. I, I get what you mean. I, I call it re, uh, kind of I call it rhetorical because they're repetitive devices mm -hmm. that I use to create that pulsing rhythm. Uh, and you're right; that is a that is of the of the body. I, I have to yeah, agree. With I think you there. that's what poetry is. And then and then also like when you even if you're reading yourself, you're uh, if you're if you're sub vocalizing words and reading yourself, you still have the neurons stimulated for the muscles that form the words, like the. When a poet writes a poem, they're using your body as the medium. Like I can feel when you read that poem, like my body becoming the medium. And when I'm when I'm mm. reading a, or hearing a um, a novelist read from a novel, I feel like like there's a movie going on, and it's sort of I'm watching it and sort of in it. Yeah. But I'm not like it's not like beating on me in the same way. So that's that's the distinction <laughs> to me. And uh, just no, people I always ask. So yeah. 
you made it really clear there. I I, I agree with okay. you. That's that's a that's a good uh, a good way to to feel it. I think. Okay, good. Well, we're yeah. we're in agreement then. Thanks. <laughs> um, <laughs> so everybody uh, is just uh, first of all, Melanie is here. She says hi, and she says Maggie the cat's watching too. Um, okay. And so people are just saying how much they love your poems, Jim. Um, I'm not seeing any oh, questions. Um, so if you have any questions, you have a couple, one last chance to ask any questions. Um, one of the things, other, the other thing Eric Campbell said was um, that he would like me to be more like the, um, what's that, the artist studio or the actor studio, that guy who asks. Um, <laughs> so he wants to know, okay. and I thought this was a good question. See, he should be the host and not me. We should just hire him to be a host. But um, but, but he um, wanted to know if there was a writer, uh, living or dead, who you would uh, have dinner with. Who would you want to have dinner with? Any writer, living or dead, and, and why, of course. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's hard. That's another hard one for me. Um, this, this is a shallow answer, in my opinion. I, I know there are other, other answers that would come to me. But a writer that I've greatly enjoyed and who has challenged me a lot uh, is Haruki Murakami. Oh yeah, that would be a great. That's a great answer, uh, actually. Yeah, I, I I I'm a lover of magical realism uh, and speculative fiction, and I write speculative fiction. Uh, and I've got a, I've got a collection of speculative short stories coming out uh, at the end of next year. Uh, but when I I had a friend who had just read uh, Kafka on the Shore. Uh, it's this big. Um, I'm telling you, man, you better be ready. You better talk about buckling your chin straps if you're going to read that. Uh, it's like you have, you, for a, there are times you have no idea where you are in that thing. And then all of a sudden, a piece lands and, it, and, and it's like a lightning bolt of connection all the way through. And you go, oh, and you see it. Uh, and there's a lot of craziness in there and there's some graphic violence. And there's stuff that some people, and graphic sex too. Murakami loves to write very graphically about sex. Uh, but it's just the whole thing, the, just the bigness of that vision that he has in some of those novels. Um, the Wind-Up Bird Chronicle is, I think, I don't know, I'm just astonished at that book and how mesmerized I was for five or six hundred pages, however long that thing is. Just totally, absolutely mesmerized. Uh, so he might be somebody I'd love to sit down and talk to. Uh, he is kind of a metaphysician. And there's a metaphysical thing going on in all of his books. Um, and he's about, uh, he, he tends to split this world of reality that we uh, commonly live in and with there's some other hidden domain, hidden world that his characters somehow get connected to, get caught up in. And now they're, they're trying to figure out either how to come back to the ordinary world or they're learning how to operate in that other world uh but it but it has a lot of uh meaning for us it's like science fiction in a way the best science fiction is i mean i think of uh uh, uh, uh the, what is it the left hand of darkness by ursula Le Guin. you know all of the significance that book has to us human beings on planet earth but none of the story occurs here you know 
So anyway, he might be, he would certainly be one I would like to pick. I'd like to pick his brain and know what the hell he's trying to do in some of those. He's also written some magnificent short stories. Too. Yeah, yeah, he has. He's He might be my favorite favorite uh, prose author, speaking of prose. I, I love, yeah. love everything I've read of his. And he's a, he'd be a great yeah. dinner guest because, you know, the, the depth of knowledge and uh, and the strangeness of the way he thinks is, is both uh, yeah. really interesting for sure. That's a good answer. And I wouldn't have thought of that yeah. either. Um, let me, I, I wanted to ask a follow-up, um, earlier and sort of didn't get to it, but you mentioned that, um, I think it was a uh, Melanie's prompt. Is that, am I remembering that right? Um, you, you mentioned, yeah. um, um, how the, how the poem just started like flowing down from that title kind of, and how does, uh, how does the writing process work for you? And how do you know, um, when a poem is done? Like, do you like, like we, I understand that there's like some inspiration that sort of triggers you into propelling, you know, being propelled forward into a poem, right? Uh, but but what is the process like after that? Like, how many drafts do you go through? Um, is it is it? Someone mentioned earlier automatic writing, and um, and and you know, a lot of those things we're talking to sort of relates in that way. But I assume you you do revise and, and things like that. So so what does your writing process actually look like? Like at um, at a pragmatic kind of level. Well, I don't do automatic writing anymore, but I but I'm grateful for those two or three years where I did it avidly would write as fast as I could the muscles in my hand became you know they, you know they, you know had big muscles in my because you know, I would start no punctuation write as fast as I could for as long as oh, I could wow. uh, and just fill pages and then I'd go back a week later and look in that notebook and I would have no idea who had, who had written any of it but there would be these passages that were better than anything I have ever written when I was trying to write a poem and it just kept dawning on me you know, we, we, I, everybody's got to find their own way, but I had to get out of gym. I had to get out of the self to a degree or get into some other, uh, more unconscious part of that, uh, to find my, a voice as a writer. Uh, so, um, Yeah, connect me back up now, Tim, to work with. <laughs> well, we were talking about, I got a, you, know, you know, since you have that sense of, like, getting out of your own way, right? It makes yeah. me sort of oh, imagine that you don't revise much, but I assume that you do. So that's kind no, of the question. No, 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 I do. I do. If I could share the screen and just show you uh, a folder of one of my poems, mm -hmm. you know, I, it might be 30 or 40 uh, drafts easily um, uh, of, of all of most of my poems. Uh, occasionally, I'll write a poem uh, that... Uh, uh, that I'm going, oh man, I, you know, I'm going to come back and look at it many times, but I don't know. I think this is it. You know, it happens right in the first draft. It does happen occasionally, but usually for one thing, after I finish the first draft, more stuff keeps coming for that poem. And then I have to go, man, the poem would be even better if it had that in it. I got to get, more, you know, so it, some of the revision is like that. And then some of it is that there is a uh, chaff in that, in that process it's wheat and chaff and you have to separate the chaff from the wheat you just have to get the extraneous bullshit stuff that comes through you have to get some of that a lot you got to get it all out if you can and i don't always get it all out you know some of my poems are flawed in that way there's some of that stuff but i work so hard to get it out uh, no so i actually do revise but here's a statement that i make and i believe it that revision is writing uh really if i sit down to revise Okay, here's a poem. I'm working on it. You know, I've got a couple of drafts. I'm going to sit down and work on, look at that poem again. Something comes to me just in the same way it did in the original draft writing. 
when I'm revising. It's coming to me in that same way if I'm open. And so to me, uh, revising and, and writing the original is really the same process. I don't feel like they're total, uh, wholly different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, that, that's kind of what I assumed, and, and a good explanation of it, yeah. and good advice too for everybody. Thanks, Jim. Um, we we're kind of over time, but do you want to read, finish on one last poem, or whatever, whatever you want? Uh, one of the longer ones is fine too, or uh, whichever one you feel like closing up on. Because uh, is Eternal House too long? That's about a four. No, that's, read. That, that'd be great. Yeah, let's do it. Are you sure? No, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, it's not like there's an actual time limit. We just try to keep these sort of a reg relatively consistent length. So. Uh, this is the, uh, I thought of it as the last poem in the book, but then I, I had, there was, there is a prologue, there is a, uh, epilogue, uh, but I won't read the epilogue tonight, but I, I think I like this poem. <laughs> this is a poem that I have maybe a hundred drafts of trying to get the rephrasing and everything on it. So I hope it works. It was published in a, in the South Dakota review and, uh, 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 a magazine that I like a lot and I love the editor up there. Uh, Leanne Roropa. This is called uh, Eternal House. Oak leaves blow over the wide porch. Windows stained by storms reflect the low autumn sun. Doors older than empires swing open. Children scatter like cockroaches, turn and rise up on their hind legs when cornered, then shout as they run into the garden. A woman carries a tray of bread and wine into the crowded dining room. All the names carved into the long table. Some long buried and lost under the names of others. Mice skulk under the polished floors. The bones of saints and murderers breathe all night within the foundation. Interior walls morphing from stone to mud to brick to board. The heads of beasts hang in a lighted hall beside diplomas and awards. Books lounge on the shelves, hiding caches, caches of the long dead between the walls. Diamonds, manuscripts, diaries, loaded guns, rolls of cash, bloodied knives. The widow's small room collects statuettes and candles. An old dog curls up against the crack of light, noticing through its lids the late-night shadows of feet passing by. In the kitchen cupboard, bags of flour and sugar and salt stand at attention in their long rows. In halls and bedrooms, closets harbor abandoned staffs and clubs. Dresses cascade into the rubble of footwear. Ties lap up the darkness of overcoats and scarves. Tickets to an old drama on the honor of a daughter and her father the king nestle in the breast pocket of a jacket. Belts curl up like the rings of a bristlecone pine. This is where I live. The past grins at me from mantles. The dark bruise of the cellar lie in wait, still as the minds of sages. Chameleons sprawl on window screens like notes pinned to the lapels of lost children. The glassed-in back porch embraces the best winter sun reserved for heads of the household. I could take up hammer and saw, apprentice myself to carpenters and architects, build more rooms of mud and stick and brick and stone and board and glass and steel. I could take up the sword 
the gun, the hand grenade, and defend the boundaries of the estate. I could cook and serve meals. I could sit back in the drawing room, prop my heels up on good leather, smoke a cigar. I could gather around the kitchen table and sing. I could start an argument or press my ear against the door and dream the right weapon in my hand. I could bear the new child in my womb, bring her forth in white sheets, could withdraw from the pale husk of my body in that same bed with the hand of that child on my face, her eyes beseeching me to stay. I could stop everything, stand in the middle of this empty, ancient house, listening to the creaking of floorboards, the rattle of windows in the wind, the satisfying rub of tongue within groove. I could walk out to the front field with the great tarantula of the sky turning over my head, a moment so naked and so long the house disappears its elements flying out into the bodies of trees, the tall wild grass, the deer and the fox and the beetle. I gaze out into the world from the porch of my own brow, this house of my own making and my undoing. Excellent poem to end on. Thanks so much, uh, Jim Peterson. That was Eternal House from Jim Peterson's newest book from Red Hen Press, The Horse Who Bears Me Away. Jim, thanks so much for being a guest today. I'm really glad that we sort of got connected and um, or get, get to share your poems in this wonderful book, which I really love. Thanks for being a guest tonight. Well, thank you so much, Tim. Thank you, Eric, for your, uh, your, your questions. <laughs> uh, and Melanie and Patricia and all my friends, Tatum and uh, Makla probably, and uh, a lot of uh, Jennifer, a lot of my friends I think are probably here. Uh, and uh, I, I appreciate, I'm forgetting some of the names, but uh, thank you all for coming. And thank all the rest of you too out there. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And, and thanks, Jim. Have a great rest of your night. I will. Bye. You too. Bye now. So that was Jim Peterson uh, with his newest book, uh, which I'll put on the screen one last time. This is The Horse Who Bears Me Away from Red Hen Press. Um, just a wonderful poet, a wonderful book. I really enjoyed this book. I read the whole way through. You can find it at redhen.org. Um, just type in uh, Jim Peterson or look for their uh, most recent books that came out because this is one of those, The Horse Who Bears Me Away by Jim Peterson. With that beautiful horse, uh, which you saw in the background of his um of his uh, video there. Um, it's a, a gorgeous cover and uh, that, that black eye of oblivion staring at us. Uh, thanks so much, Jim, for, for being a guest today. Now, um, the end of the show is always a open mic for a prompt. And the prompt for this week was, let me pull it up for everybody. The prompt was... Uh, yeah, so the prompt for this week was, what's on the other side of that door? Now, if you uh, wrote a poem for the prompt this week, please feel free to call in and share it. Uh, the number we have is 818-850-7727. That's our open mic line. Let it ring a few times when you call. It'll appear on my call screen, and then I will call you back when the time is right. Uh, the other option is to use uh, Skype. Don't bother with both. Just use one or the other. Send me a chat message over Skype at Rattle Poetry, and the same thing will happen. Um, just, like, wave to me, you know, and I will uh, accept your whatever they call it, um, 
accept your connection. I think they call it connection on Skype. And um, then I will call you when the time is right. So just uh, let me know you want to be here. Like uh, Carla Schwartz is right now uh, on the phone. I'm not going to answer, but I will call Carla back later. Do the same thing. Um, so we have... Uh, we have uh, Angela Gartner, we have an 805, we have Nivedita Karthik, we have Caitlin Buxbaum, Richard Westheimer, Sally Dunn, uh, Brent, uh, Brent Stauffer, Allison Campbell. We got a lot, of, and the phones are ringing off the hook right now. So um, looking forward to sharing these poems that, uh, that you all wrote this week. So, yeah, so if you want to do that, um, call in or send me a chat message, like I said. And... Um, but before you do, or immediately after you do, email the poem to openmike at rattle.com. All one word, open mic, open M-I-C at rattle.com. Then we can show the poem as you read. So that's how this is going to work. Now, my my um my poem for uh, for this week, I, I once again I didn't give myself enough time, which I'd have to stop doing. So I wanted this to be a sonnet, and I kind of ran out of time. So it's sort of a a, a nonet or or I don't know what. It's only eight lines. I only got eight lines through. But um, this was my The Other Side of the Door poem. Here it goes. On the other side of the door is nothingness. Don't worry yourself with that. This world has rooms enough for all your dreams, a wife, a house, some kids, a dog, two cats. And think of all the other doors that seem to lead somewhere, but don't. There's nothing more outside of what you've always known. Ignore the single door. Don't touch its silver knob. Keep shut the latch like it's your only job. So that is my, I think if you uh, come back in a little bit, maybe if you, if you um, are friends with me on Facebook, maybe I'll post the actual on Facebook. That is uh, eight lines of a uh, eventual sun. I got to get some images in there, but I couldn't really see the room is the problem. But Megan had a, a good poem here. This is On the Other Side of the Door, same title. And this is Megan's prompt poem and, and of course her prompt she's the one who makes these prompts up every week um here's megan's prompt poem on the other side of the door your baby blanket soft as you recall your mother's recipe in her tidy scrawl the entire month you missed when you were sick your lost silver button your neon lipstick the day you said no untouched and new two futures one with and without you your dad's cigar butts, your sister's perfume, the broken floorboard of your childhood bedroom, your dead dog still a pup, your legs at 21, that burger from the diner in Maine well done, the letter she wrote you, she never sent it, the car of your dreams slightly dented. That was Megan's poem on the other side of the door. Now uh, let's see what you have tonight. Caitlin Buxbaum, I'll find. Uh, um, so what do you have for us today? So I was really glad that you put this prompt out there because I've been meaning to do a sort of ekphrastic series on a, on a bunch of pictures of doors uh, posted by a poet. So there's a poet, I don't know if you know him, named Adam Clay, who had a book called To Make Room for the Sea come out this year. And I just thought the cover was beautiful. I still haven't even read the book. But I followed him on Instagram, and he posts all these random pictures of doors. So I was like, oh, perfect. And I didn't write on the one that I was planning to, but um, it's still a good one. So Yeah, this is a cool door for sure. Uh, you included a picture, so we can all see. So here it is, and there's no, um, no sound in the background. I am sorry about that. <laughs> okay, so this is Bywater by Caitlin Buxbaum. Go ahead whenever you're ready, Caitlin. Okay, um, I will say Bywater 
part of the reason I titled it that is because that's the location stamp that was on this photo. I don't know what state it's in, but um, yeah. So anyway, this is Bywater. What comic's gift can shine without his sapphire sorrow? Which poet fails in writing to melt her buttered walls in favor of art sliced raw? Climb the stairs, cross the porch adorned with tired September plants. The only way to catch a glimpse of truth through windowed words is to brave the details of your own reflection. How many have grasped the algae pool edge there and never chanced a dive? Enter if you dare. Behind that heavy door may be a home for you and other tenants too. Dwell in depth as long as lungs allow, but don't forget to venture back into the autumn light and breathe the present air. Excellent. Thanks so much for that, Kate. That was By Water by Caitlin Buxbaum. Uh, another excellent poem, and that's a cool picture too. Thanks, thanks for sharing that, Caitlin. Thanks. Oh, I, w- I forgot to mention, you got a shout out on Billy Collins' broadcast oh, today. Really? Um, he had just discovered Tom C. Mm-hmm. Hunley and was like, oh, I love this guy's poems. And also, he was published in Rattle, and Rattle's pretty great. Oh, that's so. cool. I have to go back and, and look at that. And, and I, you know, I, I, you know, we should have Billy on as a guest. I, uh, I asked him if he would do something. Oh, years ago, I asked him if he would do transatlantic poetry with us, and he said he was not good enough with computers. But now that he's doing Facebook Live, like five years later, or something, oh, yeah. I think he might be. So maybe I should ask him to be on a, an episode. Totally. Oh, cool. Thanks for letting me know that, Angela. I mean, Caitlin. Whoever <laughs> <laughs> I am, we're all the same. Yeah. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, thanks, Caitlin. Yeah. Yep. Bye. Okay. Um, let's see. Let's call up next. Let's call up Brent is next. Hey, Brent, how are you doing tonight? I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm not hearing you. You're very, very, very quiet. How's that? Ah, uh, it's good. You're you're good now. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah, it's it's some, you know how this thing is. This particular iPad of mine, it 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 somehow it manages to perform the same operation in different ways. <laughs> yeah, that, like it'll. Yeah, yeah, that's the magic of modern technology, I think. Um, but yeah, it always. I think it just needs to buffer or something. Like it sort of like takes a while to connect. Um, let me try to find. Brent. Yeah, oh, here it is. That, that, okay. Yeah. So, uh, so what what did you have for us today? Okay. Well. Um, uh, like you, I didn't give myself enough time. Um, I I uh, I imagined that uh, I would talk about the door for a bit, and then move on to uh, contemplations of what was beyond the door. Um, but I only got as far as contemplating the door, um, and <laughs> and I I think that. This might actually be the end of the poem, um, because I like the idea of, of somebody getting so wrapped up in the door that they forget about going through it, seeing what's on the other yeah, side. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I meant to go into like the whole what was going on in the room. I never, I never got there. But uh, okay, so what's behind it was your poem. Yeah, I, I yeah, yeah, I stayed there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What's behind it? The door 
a jubilant red, remains closed. Or it's the color of freshly spilled blood. The thousand doors in this house are all shut tight like the surface of a straining eardrum. This crimson, though, is a rose of Lancaster. Or it's a welcome beacon for wary wayfarers. Should we open it? What do you think? It's so red. Maybe that means something. Is it locked? Or when it's swung open with a sigh? Outside the house begins the slow rush of night. Yellow sunlight squeezes through dim windows to lay across the egg-white walls in golden bars. Watch ourselves consider our own warped figures in the bright brass doorknob as in a convex mirror. Excellent. And that was uh, Brent Stoffer's poem, What's Behind It. I think that works, yeah. I like it, I like it Brent. I think it's, I think it's, uh, it's done. That's where you wanted to go with okay. it. Yeah. Well, good. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. That's great news. <laughs> cool. Cool. Thanks, Brent. Thanks for calling in. Uh, thanks yeah, a lot. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay. Uh, let's call up Allison Campbell. I don't know if Allison Campbell's been on before. Um, let me see. Let's call up Allison. And um, hey, Allison, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Hi. I can hear you. Yeah. Excellent. I um I can't see. If you want to click on the camera, you can come in. But we have audio, so if you if you don't, that's fine too. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Do you want me to read the poem? Yeah. So, what poem do you have? Because I was this the random street view? Because I, I think that's all I have. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, ram, uh, it's a random street view of um, Ireland. Yeah. Well. Yeah. That was so. That was last week. But that's okay. Let's just get it in here. This is a, an unnamed road. This was last week's prompt. Um, the random street. Um, you take a picture from. Uh, randomstreetview.com and write a poem about right. that. And so yours is yeah. an unnamed road in County Westmeath, Ireland. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And are, are you calling from Ireland? No, no. I'm coming uh, coming from the UK. Uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. But I, I'm, uh, I've been to Ireland, but not, not that part. No. <laughs> okay. Is there anything you want to say about this before you read it? Or do you want to just jump right in? Um, well, I just saw the, I subscribed to Rattle and I just saw the, the trigger thing and I thought, oh God, that sounds great. I'd never seen Random Street View and I just went onto it and um, it's this beautiful road in Ireland. So it just kind of sparked a poem. Oh, very cool. Okay. Well, let's hear it. Okay. It's called um, <clears throat> Unnamed Road, County Westmeath, Ireland. I reach back grab the AA road map from the back seat. Say to one of the children, in God's name, find where we are. The road's unmarked. We've no idea. It's a road to nowhere. I turn the car back into a hedge, screech off to find a turn. Now, lilac trees shed petals, cover an unnamed road leading to somewhere in County Westmeath. There's a weave of clouds, shapes of smoky purple, sunlight on the single track, clumps of blossom just holding. And I'm wishing I'd been there years ago. This time, I'd park the car up that grassy bank, lean on the bonnet, breathe the cool air. I'd turn my head, call back to the children, come out, will you? And just take a look at this road leading to God knows where. Excellent. I love that ending. Thanks so much. And that was uh, Alison Campbell with Unnamed Road, County Westmeath, Ireland. Thanks so much for uh, calling in, Alison. I hope you can do it again. Thank you very much. Bye now. Yeah, bye.
Yeah, it must be very late in the UK. Um, Allison said that poem, um, you know, right after the show last week. Um, so I felt I hope that we missed it. It was uh, just a few hours later. So I thought maybe might as well get that in. Um, let's see. Let's do. Let me just really quick, because I think Vicky has connection trouble sometimes. Let's, let me read Vicky Miko's poem really quick. This is Your Mind, The Swinging Door. It's pretty short, so I'll just read this uh, for Vicky here. Your mind, the swinging door. You're the aperture of your mind. You're the mind itself begging to be. You're the other side of someplace else. You'll always come back the way you came, but you'll never come back the same. Excellent little poem there from Vicky Miko. Thanks for sharing that, Vicky. Um, let's call up, hmm, I don't know if we're going to be able to get to everybody. Who is this? This is, um, let's see. You know, maybe, maybe we'll do, yeah, I don't know if we're going to be able to get to everybody this week. I'm sorry to everybody. I, um, let's see. Next up, though, would be Carla Schwartz. Let's call it Carla. Phone is ringing, and I will find Carla's poem. Hi, hang on. Okay, it's me, hey, Carla. Carla. Yeah, hey, Carla, how are you doing tonight? I'm good, I'm good. It's a great night of poetry. Yeah, I, I love Jim William, or Jim uh, Peterson. He was really fun to talk to. Um, what, what, yeah. What was, yes. your, what was your poem about? My poem? Yeah, yeah, what was it My about? My poem, so it's called Dystopian Hotel, and I didn't think I'd be able to write an other side of the door poem and then suddenly it came to me, actually, I think either yesterday. Uh, but I, I, um, I had a dream. And uh, there was a, a door in my dream, and I wrote about it. And, uh, and um, so that's, I'll read you the poem if you want. Okay, great. Dystopian Hotel. This is Carla Schwartz. Go ahead, Carla. Yep. yep. The next place I go is a hotel with a swimming pool where the parking lot would be. This is not a time of masks. Many people walk around. I find my room behind the pool. When I open the door, I see the room is no bigger than a closet. It, must, it might once have been a maintenance closet with a mop-up sink. Oh, you know what? I have the wrong one, so I'm gonna read it from yours. Um, yeah, so it, um, this, it's not a time of mess. Many people walk around. I find my room behind the pool. When I open the door, I see the room is no bigger than a closet. It might once have been a maintenance closet with a mop-up sink. Now squeezed in behind a small basin and toilet, a tiny mattress. There are no windows. Rest seems impossible. Restlessness inevitable. Is this a future we can all look forward to? Thanks, Carla. That was dystopian hotel, kind of a um, you know one of those twenty twenty in a nutshell type visions of a metaphor of a poem. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Carla. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Tim, for everything. Yeah, my my pleasure. Bye-bye. Good night. Okay. Um, let's see. You know, maybe we'll just try to get to, to everybody on the list because uh, we had those two. You know, uh, Angela. In Nivy, I messed up their recordings. Now we're calling up Joy Stahl. And I will find Joy's poem. Door number two. Hello. Hey, Joy, how are you doing tonight? 
Oh, I am so tired. <laughs> <laughs> is it is it a late one? Um, no, I'm just uh, exhausted from working both of my two jobs today. Oh, oh wow! I teach during the day and in the evening as well, two nights a week. Uh, where is it that you work? What do you do? Um, well, I teach middle school, uh, and then I also teach English as a second language to adults in the evening. Oh, how, how is that going? With the, are you doing it online or is it in person? Well, we were we've kind of been bouncing back and forth, and tonight was the the first night that I could have had the adults back in the building, and uh, I only had one person show up, so it was kind of uh, anticlimax. But we'll we'll get them back in. We we got the the uh, middle schoolers back yesterday, so. I'm trying to find it for my hand a second. Um, let me see. I sent it right at the end yeah. of the... <laughs> is this it? Ah, here it is. Okay, I've got it now. This is it. Door, I... number, door number two. Go ahead whenever you're ready. All right. I, it, I will say that I failed at writing this until I took a comic view of it. <laughs> okay. Door number two. Costumed and prepared with a purse full of minutiae, eager and breathless, Ready, player one. Showcase time. What is behind that door? A trip? A new car? A living room suite? A beribboned donkey? Let's make a deal. Thanks. And that was uh, uh, Joy Stahl with a trip down memory lane. I haven't thought of that in in quite a while. Thanks, Joy. Thank you. Yeah, have a good night. You too. Okay, um, let's see. Next up, we will do... Uh, Carlton asked me to read his poem. This is Beyond uh, Beyond the Door by Carlton Johnson. And I'll just read it for him. Beyond the Door. Butterflies ignored in a moment of panic, even when young boys in manic hormones rising get a shot, a lure, indiscretion behind closed doors. No, not ever... After the warmth of skin, disgust, his father did not discover, rather nonplussed. Teenage boys will be teenage boys, he intuited something, sapping joy. His eldest son's happiness, and thus killed any desire, going cold turkey. The thrill of outspent, the thrill outspent and faced the start of scores, capers behind closed doors. Excellent. Love the repetition and rhyme in that one. Thanks so much. It was Carlton Johnson with Beyond the Door. Um, let me call up the next person on the list. Uh, let's see. Have we called? This is the part of the show where I can't, it's hard to tell who I've talked to already and who I haven't. This is Sally Dunn. I think, uh, we haven't talked to Sally yet. Hello. Hey, Sally, how are you doing tonight? Doing okay. <clears throat> and your poem is Do Not Open That Door. Uh, is there anything you want to yeah. say about it or are you, uh, ready to go? Um, I'll just say it's, it's still pretty rough. I get the feeling it's trying to go two different directions and I'm, not sure which one. Interesting. But, well, go go where the poem takes you. That's what uh, Jim's advice would be, I think. Do not open the door. Go ahead. Okay. Do not open that door. The knob is cold. The door sticks. I shove it open with my hip. I tell myself not to, but I have to see. Outside, the world, life. I fall down, roll and slide in mud until covered with slime. Dripping, I stand cold, no sweater, no jacket, no shoes. I peer around. I don't see them, but they were out here once. Well, not here, 
but that other place I lived, and the place before that. The drag behind me, the ghosts, like tin cans tied to my rear. The ones I loved, the ones I never understood, the ones I failed. I grabbed for the knob. I must get that door closed. If I can pull it shut, if it won't stick, if the lock will hold, I can jump inside. Where serenity is an illusion, I can believe. Excellent. Thanks so much. And that was uh, Do Not Open That Door by Sally Dunn. Thanks so much for uh, sharing that, Sally. Uh, interesting, interesting poem. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, I'll try to move through uh, people pretty quick. Uh, let's see. Um, let's do Richard Westheimer. So the phone is ringing, and I will find Richard's poem. Hey, Tim. Hey, hey Richard. How are you doing tonight? Well, it's uh, kind of you to keep pushing through all the all the long list you have here. It's all right. You know, I think we probably have to definitely for the um, for the uh, podcast version, we're going to have to cut out the two people that I screwed up for. Uh, yeah. So we'll, we'll we'll keep enough <laughs> uh, keep a regular sort of length that way. Uh, so what do you have for us? Is there anything you want to say about it before you start? Ars poetica. Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll be real quick. I, um, I've I've used a metaphor that you've used before about what happens when you find a turn in a poem. Mm-hmm. It's like a door in a room that you're kind of in. Only I've I've thought of it as a box. And uh, I'd used the metaphor the other day, and then when you said about doors, I uh, just came to mind. And this sort of feels like poetry is organizing psychosis to me as I read through it. So, so we'll, Interesting. I'm we'll see for, what happens here. Yeah, looking forward to hearing this. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Uh, you got it up? Yeah. Okay. Ars Poetica about me being dropped in a box strewn with words, a pile over here with burr and burrow, and there a shard of broken mirror, and here a hammer and nails, and there a pile of hats, a well-run dry, and a sack of cats. By a whispering pine and a thriving hive of rhyme bees, dive bombing, a stack of Bibles and heavy tomes balanced on the beam of a ticking metronome. And overhead, a sky alive with embers strewn with moonlit ash and primal shadows cast on the sides. And with my eyes, I sort and spin into a thread the weft of some new cloth I weave burn holes in it with the lit end of a cigarette, gather the smoke in a net pearled from words I learned from a ghost that the gyre lines until I slide until a pile of rose thorns leap to my feet and there before me a door come loose from its lintel that stalks me dreaming, falling, sleeping, awake, to that door rehung, swung open, I find at last the ending rhyme. Excellent. Thanks so much for those. Ars Poetica about me being by uh, Richard Westheimer and excellent sounds and uh, and rhymes and uh, images in that poem. Thanks for sharing it, Richard. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity, Tim. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Have a good night. Bye. Bye. Okay. Let me see who we have left. Uh, we do... Okay. Here's Brenda Kamarinsky. So the phone is ringing, and this is a short one, so we'll get to it quick if, if Brenda's there still. It is kind of late. 
like 15 minutes past the uh, regular shift. Hey, Brenda, how are you doing tonight? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, so is there anything you want to say about your poem or sort of in the lightning round behind the door? Uh, behind the wanna... door, yeah. It will, will, it's short. We'll be quick. Okay, great. Go so, ahead. Behind the door, there are people dancing, filling the streets with music, pouring breath out, and gifting joy to the world. Here on this side, I pour myself into your waiting arms, and you gift your joy to me. Ah, very sweet little poem, Behind the Door. Thanks so much, Brenda. That was great. Yep. Thanks. Have a good night. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, and then we have um, Gail Henneman. Let's let's go do Gail Henneman. Hello. Hey, Gail. How are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm doing pretty well, Tim. It's a, a pretty evening out here in a, in a Pierce County, Tacoma, Washington area. Uh, how, how are you this evening? I'm doing great. Yeah. Uh, how, how's the weather up there in, in, in Washington? Is it, is it the, has the rain set in where it sort of never stops or is it a nice night? Mm. Oh, gosh. You know, um, the rain, our, our trademark rain is a little, uh, a little uh, drier this year. So we've just got a lot of really clear weather. So we're all kind of in shock a little bit. <laughs> oh, that's nice to hear. I'm, hope, I'm glad you're uh, able to enjoy that. Uh, so, so your poem here, Through the Door, it says for Stephen Hen with a nod to Kim Edenitso. Do you want to explain anything about that or do you want to just read it? Sure. Uh, uh, Stephen Hen last week, I know he talked about kind of the before and after in his life in poetry. And we've been uh, really fortunate on Rattlecast to hear the way poetry has transformed a lot of people's lives. And he talked about it um, through the door of sobriety and also how he came to, to poetry, you know, which was uh, really brave of him. And uh, Kim Adonisio once said that kind of walking, um, writing about her childhood, she has a line in a sonnet, I'm, I'm through the door. So um, it's kind of, kind of all of our past, I guess, that come together when we, when we start to start to write. Uh, I was just thinking about, um, about Stephen Hen and the reading last week. Um, Excellent. I've been, uh, <laughs> uh, thank you. Thank you, Tim. I'm, I'm excited to read and um, I've been listening to, to country music, you know, to kind of a, a, new, a new current here during COVID. So, so singing. So I, been great to listen to folk songs also some my family like um through the door <clears throat> when you become a little while sober and you see your dreams are getting closer you may be afraid to walk through the door although you don't live on this side anymore the door squeaks behind you now as it closes leaving old rooms of promises broken and if you opened up old window shades you'd see there were shadows in the light's place so when you turn now and go through the door, the light is bright, but you're on a sturdy floor. Though a strange new light shines in the hallways, it comes from you, so it's a light that stays. The old door is closing, old ways you're leaving. You enter your life, and this door is cleaving. <clears throat> Excellent. Well, thanks so much for sharing that. That was, uh, once again, Gail Hemmen with uh, Through the Door for Steve Hen and uh, with Nadia Kim and you. Thanks for sharing that. Thank you, Tim. Good evening. Yeah, good night. Okay, so I think uh, I think we got to everybody. So thanks, everybody, for your patience and uh, getting through. Let me do one last really quick check to make sure I know. I hate to, I had to leave, like, one person out. Um, okay, I think we did get everybody. Um, and that's all for the show today. Thanks, everybody, who called in and shared poems, and thanks for uh, enjoying, as I did, that Jim Peterson interview and all his poems. Of course, his book uh, is... The Horse Who Bears Me Away from Red Hen Press. So, so check that out if you can. And uh, next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be... Oh, wait, let me do the... Uh, 
Let me tell you about the uh, prompt for next week, of course, first. Next week's prompt is going to be... Uh, write a poem about a scientific discovery, real or imaginary. That's next week's prompt for the Rattlecast. It'll be Rattlecast number 70. Write a poem about a scientific discovery, real or imaginary. So if you write a poem this week, be sure to share it next on uh, Rattlecast number 70. And next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be Alan W. King. Um, his newest book is Point Blank. He's been in two issues of Rattle. And um, he's a wonderful, wonderful person and another great poet. So we'll get to sh- uh, see a lot of his poetry and uh, talk to him. He also has a really cool um, um, video poems that he does. Uh, he just released one the other day. I think maybe we'll play that on the show and then uh, sh- and then talk about it a little bit because I'm interested in video poetry. Um, it's not something that I, that I feel works really well all that often. And with Alan King, it, it works great. So um, the, the video poems I've seen of his are really outstanding. So maybe we'll talk about that a little bit too. Also, his new book, Point Blank. And we'll do, of course, the, uh, the prompt poem at the end. Write a poem about a scientific discovery, real or imaginary. And that will all be Rattlecast number 70, Tuesday, December 8th, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a good week. And I will talk to you soon. Good night.